I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I was jogging it was right around dawn and I'm running I just had a somewhat of a weird feeling that you know when someone's watching you or someone's around and so I looked to the right I didn't see anything and I turned and looked to the left and she was just standing there with her arms crossed and she was staring at me I called her the crazy woman which a lot of people around here actually do kind of did a half wave to her and she didn't wave back and she just kept staring at me but she was standing in the wooded area not far from where Margaret Coon got murdered. You know, it kind of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. That's Skip Sewell. Skip is a former DEA agent who lives in Boshan, the exclusive subdivision where Margaret Coon was stabbed to death in 1987. He harbored a passing interest in the case for years, dating back to his days as a young patrol deputy for the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office. A few years ago, after retiring from the DEA, Skip joined the ranks of the investigators who have tried to solve Margaret Kuhn's murder. Like them, he found the case a frustrating slog of false leads and missed opportunities. But in 2016, a separate crime caused Skip to re-examine an unusual suspect in Kuhn's death one with a history of violent and erratic behavior. And that suspect happened to live just down the road from him in Boshan. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Season one, Who Killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode six, Outside Agent. The last episode took a close look at Margaret Kuhn's personal life, aspects of which she kept hidden from all but a few privileged insiders. One of those insiders led authorities to a suspect that Skip Sewell would come to see as the best lead yet in the decades-long quest to solve Margaret's murder. At the time that Skip started investigating the Margaret Kuhn case, 
He was working as a felony investigator for the St. Tammany DA's office. But prior to that, Skip had a long and storied career with the Drug Enforcement Administration. I consider myself what we would call an outside agent. An outside agent is a guy that's in the streets all the time, uh, meeting with informants, doing surveillance. And you had a lot of agents that sat around at the office and they, they tried it a different way, which uh, I called it intel agent or inside agent. And what they did was peruse records all day and they ran telephone numbers, they uh, ran license plates. They spent very little time out on the street. I met Skip in 2019 while I was working on a documentary series called The Pharmacist about the opioid epidemic in St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana. Skip looks like what you might imagine a DEA agent looks like. He's tall, muscular, intimidating, someone you wouldn't want to mess with. And from the start of his career, Skip had big ambitions. I look for the, the biggest and best cases. I wanted to know who was supplying the little guys. I wanted to go up the chain as high as I could. I wasn't interested in just finding someone to arrest that day and then I'm done with the case. I wanted to find the biggest and the baddest in New Orleans and I, uh, I did and I made some high level cases when I was uh, with the DEA. One of those high level cases involved a man named Richard Pena, also known as Scarface, who ran the biggest and most violent drug gang in New Orleans history. They kidnapped people, uh, they set up murders. It was a particularly violent organization that I feel was probably responsible for New Orleans being murder capital of the United States in the uh, 1990s. Him and his gangs, he was controlling almost every project out there. He was a, uh, a psychopath. He was a vicious killing machine. I went on from there, and I did another case on a guy named LaBarbie. He was in the cartel with El Chapo. Another notable case, there's an agent murdered in New Orleans. Came over Houston for a conference and uh, ended up getting murdered, and I uh, solved his murder. After more than a decade as an outside agent, Skip was promoted to a supervisory role, leading a narcotics and violent crime task force on the North Shore. But in early 2015, that task force came under fire in what would become one of the biggest scandals in DEA history. Four agents under his command were accused of selling painkillers, threatening confidential informants, and stealing cash during drug raids, among other crimes. Skip was relegated to desk duty, the ultimate slap in the face for an outside agent. What was really painful at the end, I couldn't get in there to you know, tell my side of the story. I just got so fed up and disgusted with it that I retired. No allegations of misconduct were ever filed against Skip, but when he left DEA, he had no plan B. He found himself sitting on the couch all morning, wondering what to do with his life. But then, a new opportunity arrived. I got a call from the district attorney's office here in St. Tammany, and he asked me if I wanted to come to work for him as a uh, felony investigator. Skip needed a job. But he also liked the idea of returning to local law enforcement. He'd started his career as a patrol deputy and had fond memories of that time. I probably enjoyed my time at the sheriff's office in a police car, believe it or not, more so than I did hunting fugitives for the U.S. Marshals and working uh, high-level drug investigations with the uh, DEA. When you're driving around in a car, you never know what you're going to get. Uh, you can go from anything as simple as assisting someone on a welfare check 
to responding to a murder scene. Every day's different. Every day's something new. It was exhilarating. It was a rush. Uh, you could help people. Skip took the job. He had high expectations of investigating local homicides. But the reality of life as a DA investigator quickly set in. My first day uh, I'm there, the uh, assistant district attorney that I'm working with, he's technically my boss, and he comes in there and he says, hey, I got something I, uh, I need you to do. I'm like, well, sure, what is it? And he says, well, I don't even know how to ask you this. I'm like, you know, i, I got to do whatever you ask pretty much. I mean, that's why I'm here. I'm, you know, your investigator. He goes, uh, can you call these people and ask them how much restitution they want for their cars being broken into? And I thought he was kidding at first, but he wasn't. And so anyways, I called the people and checked on the restitution. And then the next day he comes in, he says, hey, uh, listen, Skip, we have a, uh, a trial coming up and I need you to uh, print subpoenas for the people that need to, to be here for the trial. I mean, I, I was one of the most decorated agents at DEA, and now I'm m making copies and um, <laughs> printing subpoenas and calling people about restitution, and it really was kind of humiliating. The job wasn't what Skip was hoping for, but he worked hard anyway. I guess it's all a matter of personal pride. You know, I've always been taught from early on from my mom and dad, you know, when you have a job, you, you work and you earn your money. And I always did that no matter where, where I worked at. Skip settled into a routine at the DA's office. In his spare time, he poked around old cold cases, hoping to stumble onto something he could solve. He remembered one case in particular. I was en route to Covington, Louisiana, when I heard all the uh, radio traffic Subject 10-7 and uh, not exactly sure what the cause of death is. I also saw you know, several cars go flying by and I knew they were unmarked police cars and they were whizzing by to go to uh, the scene that day. The initial call was somebody believed that the woman, Margaret Kuhn, had got hit by a car. But when the deputies got there, they found out differently. 7-11 Central appears to be a homicide victim, Margaret Kuhn. Skip had remained interested in the case during his years with the DEA. And coincidentally, in 2000, Skip had moved to Boshan. If you look about, uh, I guess, about 400 yards uh, away, maybe a little bit further, uh, out my back door, you can pretty much see where Margaret Kuhn was murdered. People still talked about it from time to time in the community. In his new role at the DA's office, Skip decided to take a closer look at the Kuhn file. And he was surprised by what he found. So I remember when I first opened those four boxes of the case file, and I looked through it, and some was duplicate stuff, copies of stuff. And uh, I couldn't believe that that's all that existed uh, for case file for the murder of an assistant district attorney. So I went back to the assistant district attorney, and I said, hey, do you, there has to be more to this case file than is in here. Am I right? And he said, Skip, over the years, so many people have picked that up and looked through it, and basically God knows who's taking what and what's gone where. After pouring over the file, he reached out to some old detectives who'd worked the case. And I noticed right away that just about every one of them had a different theory the list of suspects it was so long that it was mind-boggling. 
Could have been people Margaret prosecuted, uh, drug dealers, law enforcement officers, hitmen, uh, ex-lovers. There was everybody was suspect, but there wasn't a clear cut. We think you know Joe Criminal did it, but we just can't prove it. The detective Skip spoke to actively discouraged him from pursuing the case. You know, Skip, we think you're wasting your time. This case will never be solved. I mean, there's been 10, 12 different detectives on it. Uh, There's missing evidence uh, from what we hear from the sheriff's office. Uh, There's so much confusion and issues with the case that, uh, you know, you'll never solve this murder. Skip took their warnings to heart. After talking to the assistant district attorney and thinking about it and come to realization it would never probably be solved, I kind of set it off to the side. But that changed one day in the fall of 2018, when a young prosecutor called Skip into her office. For the past year, the prosecutor had been working on a case involving a woman from Boshen. She knew Skip had been looking into Margaret Kuhn's murder, and she had just received some information that she thought he could use. It all traced back to a bizarre episode that unfolded a year and a half earlier inside a local defense attorney's office. 911, 3045, where's your emergency? Yes, ma'am. I have a lady here with a gun who's trying to shoot me. Do you know her? Yes, ma'am. She's a client of mine. I'm an attorney. What is her name? Her name is Patricia Curry. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. As a public defender myself, uh, we don't choose our clients, but we don't represent just the person. We represent everyone, the system. We make sure that if the state's going to put somebody in jail, that they do it correctly. And I represent whoever comes in the door if they have a case that fits with what I do. I don't discriminate against anybody. That's Keith Couture. Keith is a veteran criminal defense attorney in St. Tammany Parish. In 2016, he was hired by a 75-year-old Beauchene retiree named Patricia Curry. I used to do work for the AARP. I was on a brochure that they put out, and I uh, did bankruptcy at a discount. So she came to me through that advertisement, and she was having trouble with her homeowners association, they were foreclosing on her because of past debts. 
And I was able to file a bankruptcy to stop the sale of her condominium in Boshen. Keith had filed countless bankruptcy cases in his career, and he figured that was the end of it. But it quickly became apparent that this was not your average bankruptcy filing. For the past 20 years, Keith learned, Patricia Curry had been locked in an endless legal battle with the Boshen Homeowners Association. The association claimed Curry owed more than $18,000 in outstanding monthly dues. But Curry contended that the dues had been unfairly assessed. This was maybe the fourth or fifth time that there was litigation. Not just letters, not just she didn't pay or she fought over how much, but actual litigation. And of course, I did the research and found that she had taken the issue all the way up to the appellate court. From the outside, Patricia appeared relatively harmless. She's got gray hair. She walks uh, with a cane. She would appear to be a grandmotherly looking person. But according to Keith, Patricia was also extremely shrewd and demanding with a piercing intelligence. She was convinced she would ultimately defeat the Homeowners Association. From what I recall, she had studied higher level mathematics. Um, She would brag to me about being able to count cards at the casino or winning money at the casino. She understood the legal aspects of her case. She didn't want to accept if the law wasn't in her favor. She wanted to win. When Keith's initial motion was denied, Patricia demanded that he file a new one and relitigate the case. I told her, I'm not going any further because it's already been done. It's not going to help you in any way. At worst, it may upset the judge. But Patricia refused to listen and responded by filing her own supplemental briefs. Keith felt there was nothing else he could do. At a certain point, I decided, you know, it's best for me just to file a motion to withdraw with the court. I filed a motion to withdraw. I notified her that I was not able to be present at the hearing on this matter. That was on Tuesday. On Thursday is when she came over to my office and tried to kill me. Had you been threatened before? Oh, yes. Countless times. I represent murderers, rapists, robbers. I sit in cells, six by nine cells, locked in with my clients. I'm not going to be fearful because somebody's upset with me. Had someone pointed a gun at you before? In my general direction, not at me. Had anybody ever tried to kill you before? No. As Keith recalled, his staff had left for the day, and he was alone in his back office, dealing with paperwork. Sometime around 3, 3.15, I hear the door open. So I walk down the hall to see why the door is open. I'm walking up on the right-hand side, looking to see if someone's standing by the reception door. I stop at the door, and I look to my left, and she's seated in a chair. And she has a towel across her lap. At that point, I ask her, what are you doing here, Miss Curry? She says, I'm here to kill you. And she lifts up the shotgun. The towel now slides off of it, and the barrel's pointing directly at me. And that's when I grabbed the gun. Keith ran across the hall and pounded on the door of the attorney's office next to him. My heart's racing a million beats a second. He's yelling for 
hit one of his staff members to call 911. I eventually calmed down to the point where I realized I have my cell phone in my back pocket. That's when I take it out, I call 911. 911, 3045, where's your emergency? Yes, ma'am, I have a lady here with a gun who's trying to shoot me. Okay, what's the... Highway, 337, Highway 21. I've taken the gun away from her, so she's here with bags on her feet, gloves on her hands. She's now sitting down. Do you know her? Yes, ma'am. She's a client of mine. I'm an attorney. Okay. What is her name? Her name is Patricia Curry. How old is she? How old are you, Mrs. Curry? She's in her 70s. Just keep me updated what she's doing. They are coming. Just staring at me. Okay. At the time of the attack, Patricia was wearing rubber surgical gloves on her hands and plastic garbage bags over her shoes, according to court documents. When the cops arrived, she refused to provide her name. In her car, they found extra shotgun shells and a copy of Richard III, Shakespeare's morality tale about a conniving and murderous king. Patricia was booked into St. Tammany Parish Jail on charges including aggravated assault with a firearm, resisting an officer, and possession of a Schedule IV controlled substance. I was working as a reporter for the Times-Picayune when Patricia almost shot Keith Couture. My colleague Bo Evans filed the first story on Halloween night. The fact that a 75-year-old woman had tried to shoot her attorney with a shotgun was strange enough. But what struck me most was that, in her mugshot, Patricia appeared to be laughing. Her smile suggested two possibilities. That Patricia Curry was totally insane, or that she was the victim of some comical misunderstanding that would soon be cleared up. Regardless, I quickly forgot about the story of the Mandeville grandma who tried to kill her attorney. But Skip Sewell did not forget about the story. In fact, the incident would soon cause him to re-engage in the Margaret Coon investigation. In 2018, the Patricia Curry case was being handled by a young St. Tammany prosecutor named Blair Alford. Blair had come to St. Tammany from Orleans Parish, where she prosecuted homicides. While preparing the case against Patricia, she received an unsolicited phone call. I was in my office. I was waiting to speak with the clerk about getting a copy of a, a DWI conviction. And uh, there was a knock on my door, and it was another investigator. And he says, hey, you want to walk down here to Blair's office? She's on the phone with Janice Alexander. And I'm, I was like, who is that? And uh, he said, that's Patricia Curry's daughter. I hung up the phone and hurried down to Blair's office where I listened to the conversation with Janice Alexander. The conversation with Janice lasted for more than an hour. We spoke with Janice for a long time. Janice had a contentious, uh, bizarre relationship with her mom. And she wanted to vent to Blair about uh, all the different stuff that her mom did to her when she was young, how she locked her in her room, the horrible food that she would feed her, how she had forced her to write over and over and over again because she had messy handwriting until her hands bled. She just kept going on and on. Then, toward the end of the conversation, and unprompted by Skip, Janice suddenly brought up Margaret Kuhn. At one point, she suggested that her mom possibly killed that uh, district attorney. She didn't know her name, but that assistant district attorney in Beauchene. 
And she says it makes sense. Um, she, she was found right across from my mother's house. Her mom also was a dog lover. She had a black lab. And it's theorized that whoever got close to Margaret Coon, they had to either know the dog or somehow they got that dog to allow them to get close to Margaret because that dog was protective of Margaret. And Patricia would walk her dog, would be out there a lot. So that might have been one of the ways that Patricia and Margaret Coon met up. When Janice finally got off the phone, Blair and Skip stared at one another across her desk. So Blair says, well, there, there you go. You got it. Go figure out who murdered her. And I said, all right, Blair, I'm going to go see what I can dig up. So I pulled the file on Patricia Curry. And when I looked at the picture, I was shocked. At the top of the episode, Skip told a story about an unsettling encounter in Boshen. A person who he called the crazy woman had stared him down while he was jogging. When Skip pulled the file on Patricia Curry, he realized that she was the same woman. And he slowly began to remember other run-ins he'd had with her over the years. I would see her quite a bit because she would actually walk her dog on the golf course. She would just stand in the middle of the fairway when people were trying to play golf and with her dog and people would say, hey, move. And she just turned and she had these cold, icy, gray, blue steel eyes. And she'd just sit there and she, she'd stare at you. One time we had a tournament going on and somebody hit a golf ball down there and she just walked out and picked it up and walked off. But Patricia wasn't just a menace to Boshen golfers. As Skip learned from speaking with other people in the neighborhood, she was apparently an awful neighbor too. There was an allegation that she set fire to the condos. She allegedly got in a fight with her neighbor where she beat her. Uh, she went out back with a shotgun while the guy was trimming the trees back there and sat down. Not that that's a crime to have a gun, but it's a little bizarre. It didn't take long for the same people to open up to us when we visited Boshen with Skip earlier this year. As we drove past Patricia's condo, we saw her neighbor standing outside. When we stopped to talk with her, she immediately unloaded about the things that she and her neighbors had endured. I mean, I know the stories of all the craziness, dead fish in the mailbox, and if you did anything to upset her, then, you know, she was bound to come after you in some kind of way. Like somebody said something about, keep your friend's dog out of the, my garden, and the next morning they have dog shit painted on their, on their garage door. Debbie was familiar with other incidents as well. Rock salt and the golf course, F-U-C-K golfers, because they told her not to walk her dog on the golf course. And then one time she burned- Wait, she did what with the rock salt? She burned F-U-C-K golfers into the green. On the, on the putting green? Uh-huh, <laughs> because they told her not. I mean, it just so happened the next day things would happen, yeah. you know? But she's very smart and she'll get away with anything. Yeah. Bob, the grass man that's riding on that lawnmower, he had a few tie-ins with her. At that moment, a 70-year-old Beauchene landscaper named Bob Keyes pulled up on his lawnmower and cut the engine. We asked him what he knew about Patricia Curry. Um, I, I sent a man up here to clean roofs one day. I dropped him off, and I came back, and the ladder's laying on the ground. I said, what's up, Mark? He said, that bitch threw the ladder on the ground and couldn't get off the fucking roof. <laughs> She came out here about a month later, cursing me out like a like a grown man and a sailor. And I said, you finished? I said, don't ever talk to me again because I'll treat you like a man. Mm -hmm. 
I was here the morning that she put the fish heads in the mailboxes. And a couple of my guys be out there back there uh, weed eating, and she'd throw water on them. She just wanted to piss everybody off that lived there. See, whenever they're building a new bridge and they're pouring them concrete pollens, she should be dropped in one of those. The people of Beauchene clearly had strong feelings about Patricia Curry. But as Skip and Blair Alfred soon discovered, Patricia had been accused of more than stranding workers on rooftops and burning fuck golfers into the Beauchene putting green. According to the state's motion for maximum sentence that was submitted to the judge, prosecutors noted that, quote, although the defendant has no history of prior convictions, her history is nonetheless disturbing. The motion details a number of violent episodes Curry had been involved in over a period of more than 30 years. Those episodes included allegedly throwing a Molotov cocktail into the home of a former girlfriend, lighting her next-door neighbor's garage on fire, firing a warning shot at the attorney representing the Beauchene Homeowners Association, and threatening to smash her former boss's face in with a lead pipe. And yet, Patricia had never been convicted of a crime. So Skip and Blair started reaching out to people they thought could help build the case against her. Most of them refused to talk on the record. According to Skip, they still feared Patricia and worried that she might take revenge. But one woman did agree to talk. I was afraid. I was, I was nervous. But I felt like I was doing the right thing. And I felt good about it. You know, overall, uh, in my heart, I knew there were other people out there that had had problems with Pat Curry, but other people weren't coming out and saying anything. And that's why I think, you know, she thought she could just get away with anything. I had a relationship with a woman while I was married. At the time, I was managing the Little Howard Johnsons. A woman came in for a job, and I instantly connected with her. And I called her up and gave her a job because I wanted to know her better. And that was my first relationship. And that lasted for a little over a year. This is Debbie Eskan, a retired computer science professor. In the late 1970s, she was living in Baton Rouge and going through a divorce from her first husband. But like Margaret Kuhn, Debbie hid her sexuality at work. She feared that she might get fired if she revealed it. One of the places I worked, they were highly religious. And I think I would have had to change offices. But that was the atmosphere at the time. It was, you know, don't tell. You know, go do your own business, but don't tell people who you're with if you're with a woman. Debbie also worried that if the state learned she was a lesbian or bisexual, they might take her daughter away as part of the divorce proceedings. Except for those who knew me, of course. I hid that I was bisexual. I hid that I was with a woman. I hid that I had dated women. Uh, I had a daughter who I was trying to protect. So I totally hid it in Louisiana. Still, Debbie told her husband that she was seeing a woman, and he accepted it. When Debbie's girlfriend unexpectedly passed away, he helped her cope. And uh, he took me to Charlene's one afternoon. I'm not sure how I found Charlene's, I guess through a couple of people asking where can I go to find other women to hang out with because I was grieving. And 
When I walked into Charlene's, I was pretty petrified because I had really never been to any or not many bars of that sort. I, I didn't even know what you're supposed to do in a bar. Now I know you go to have a drink and dance maybe and talk, but at that time I had no idea. As it happened, the first person Debbie met at Charlene's bar was Patricia Curry. Pat was up at the bar having a drink and I met her. She reached out to me and she said she was a writer and we had some little brief conversation. She seemed pretty level-headed and was kind and zeroed in that I was probably depressed. I did tell her I'd never been in there before. I walked out of there with her phone number. I must have called her within a week, I guess. Debbie and Patricia began dating soon after, but the relationship didn't last long. As Debbie described it, Patricia was possessive and distrustful. And I had to go back home to my daughter, and then I would come back over, and Pat would kind of sniff me up and down, like with her nose, to see if I had been with a man. And I, would, I'd, I asked her, I said, what are you doing? And she said, have you been with, it was my former husband, have you been with him? No, I have not been with him. And then I started feeling really like this woman is kind of losing it. Debbie accused Patricia of stalking her at work. All of a sudden, I get these little messages in matchbox covers on my windshield that would say, I'm watching you, <laughs> something like that. And I, I, can't, I can't say it was Pat, but I don't know who else it would have been. Debbie says the breaking point came three months into their relationship when Patricia shoved her in front of Debbie's eight-year-old daughter. Patricia then said something Debbie never forgot. She had made the statement that, well, I could just cut you up into bits and pieces. So that's why I made the police report, because I figured, you know, she might, she might just try to do that or try to do something. This all took place more than 30 years before Patricia attempted to kill her attorney. Debbie had moved on. She'd married her longtime partner and settled down in eastern Tennessee. But when Blair and Skip reached out, Debbie felt compelled to share her experience. Because I'm tired of people stepping on other people. I've seen it all my life, and I'm tired of people not standing up for other people. And nobody was standing up against Pat, and people knew what she was like, and they were fearful of her. And I thought to myself, am I going to let that fear grip me like it has others, and maybe rightly so for others, because they've had it worse than I have had? Am I going to stand up for what's right? And to me, that I felt that was the right thing to do. Debbie's account, combined with the police report she'd filed, proved valuable for the DA's case against Patricia. But as it turned out, Debbie had information relevant to Skip's cold case, too. There was a woman in Beauchene I knew Pat had a liking for and that she would walk her dog. That's what I had heard. After Margaret Kuhn's death, Debbie says she followed up with the woman who told her the story. I asked a person, I said, was it this person that she was walking the dog for, Margaret Kuhn? And the answer was yes. 
And then I just kind of surmised, well, they probably had a sexual relationship. This woman, you know, was well known and probably shunned Pat at some point. And then the rest is history and what happened, uh, happened. You know, I, I had no evidence whatsoever what she had done. I only had a gut feeling and I only had circumstantial evidence. But what I know of Pat, she was a vitriol person. She, she would go after people in, in the way she spoke. And I was afraid she might murder someone. That's why I called Mr. Coon. So they would find, you know, find out something about her. In episode four, we mentioned that a year or so after Margaret's death, Webster Kuhn received an anonymous phone call from a woman who claimed to have information about the murder. Webster got several such tips during this time, so it's not clear if the woman was Debbie Escan, but the sheriff's file suggests it may have been. In a report filed the weekend of November 20th, 1988, Detective Jay Daigle wrote that Webster received a call from an unknown white female who sounded about 30 years old, Debbie's approximate age at the time. According to the report, the caller told Mr. Kuhn, quote, Pat Curry killed Margaret, but she gave no additional information. Skip had seen this report in the case file, and he was pretty sure Debbie had made the call. But in the end, it didn't really matter. Debbie had broken up with Patricia several years before Margaret was killed, and as she herself admitted, she was not familiar with Patricia's whereabouts at the time. Her belief that Curry was involved was pure conjecture, a gut feeling. But as Skip soon discovered, someone was familiar with Patricia Curry's whereabouts at the time Margaret Kuhn was killed. I, uh, I started looking for background information on, on Curry, and I found an old report from Mandeville Police Department. Not the Sheriff's Office, but Mandeville Police Department. It was a 1988 report, and in it... Um, this private detective claimed that this young woman named Kim Mervich was being held against her will at Curry's condo in Boshin. According to the report, Kim Mervich had left her family's home and moved to Mandeville in late 1986. By February 1987, the month Margaret died, she was living with Patricia Curry. I remember nothing that got my curiosity up. The Mandeville Report also claimed that Curry had numerous knives and guns in her condominium and that she spoke about her being obsessed with knives and guns. So I knew what I had to do next, and that was to find Kim Mervich. If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650 650- 746-GONE, or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry. And mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. 
Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Production consulting by Skip Sewell. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.